Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 1. This is Episode 4 proper, 5 total. Today, discussing Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner, 1936. We are going to be delving into the present of the novel, 1910, which is either January or February, I'm not positive the month, but it's cold, and it's Boston, Massachusetts, specifically Cambridge, which, by the way, if anybody says they went to school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, they're implying they went to Harvard or MIT. Uh, but anyways, uh, th- this is the, the setting of the novel, is uh, the dorm room of Quentin Compson and Shreve McCannon. So um, the entire novel is, is happening... Well, not entire. I'd say, well, yeah, yeah, sort of the entire. Quentin is telling what happened when he went to Miss Rosa's and when he went with Miss Rosa to Sutphin's 100. He's telling all that to Shreve in the dorm room. We're assuming Shreve's never been to Jefferson, Mississippi. So we have, I guess uh, we mentioned this before on the Zero episode Two of the four narrators are in the present of the novel, uh, Quentin Compson and Shreve McCannon. Uh, Quentin, of course, from Jefferson, Mississippi. Shreve from Alberta, Canada. So um, couldn't get too much further away from each other in terms of where they came from, but interestingly enough, they're roommates at Harvard. And uh, we talked a lot about... um, we talked to some extent about them with uh, with respect to Charles Bond and Henry Sutpen, but today we're gonna we're gonna go into much more depth about Shreve uh, and who he is and how he's responding to this story and why he's taking such a fascination to it, and I think why he is embodying um, Charles Bond. And, and, you know, we talked about that to some extent last episode. We'll, we'll, we'll probably talk about it again here. Why Quentin is so connected to Henry Sutpen. And so um, as, as we get ready to dive into to those two characters and analyze them to death, uh, or almost to death, because Shreve is technically alive at the end of this novel, uh, and so is Quentin at the, at the end of this novel, but um, I'm going to get ready to hand over the baton to Whitney because she has just been rereading The Sound and the Fury. So uh, William Faulkner's Probably most famous novel is The Sound of the Fury. I mean, what's his most famous novel? I, I don't know. Azalea Dying, The Light, Light in August, Sanctuary, The Unvanquished. That's what I read in high school. Um, the Unvanquished was, was, was not indicative to me uh, of Faulkner because I remember when I read um, the, the Sound of the Fury. No, I think I read Azalea Dying first. Yeah, Azalea Dying I read in a sophomore-level English class uh, at University of Georgia, and uh, there's a chapter that just says, My Mother is a Fish, which is by, by Vardaman, which, by the way, the character's name is Vardaman. So that's, that's really all you need to know about William Faulkner is he chose to name a character Vardaman, uh, which is apparently a name of a politician from Mississippi from his time. So it's, it's not a, um, a name without precedent, but, you know, anyways. So uh, Whitney's been rereading The Sound of the Fury, and I thought, Whitney, maybe you could just talk to us about maybe your first thoughts uh, upon rereading The Sound of the Fury and, and, uh, you know, connecting it to this. Talk to us about how how does it 
um, set this novel up? Like, why do you think uh, Quentin is the right, um, you know, overlap between those two books? Well, um, I think partly because Quentin relates pretty intimately with Henry. Yeah. Um, Quentin has this, I feel like it's trivializing to call it angst, but maybe also accurate. He has this angst about his sister, Caddy, and just the concept that I think it's angst over the, the idea that both he and Caddy are going to grow up and lose something that was very special to him about their childhood or their past and that he's not ready for it. And she clearly is because she's like moving on and she's gotten pregnant and she's marrying someone and he feels all of that as a betrayal. And, um, it's just something heinous, you know? Um, so he, I think it's helping him to think through his emotions. If that makes sense, think through his emotions. Um, or maybe vicariously live out some of his desires or something through Henry. Because, you know, Quentin in Sound and the Fury, he's so angry at the man who has taken his sister Caddy's virginity. Um, Dalton Yeah, and he does I don't even know that that's true. I mean, Caddy implies that she's been with other men as well, but he knows about Dalton names. And so he goes after him. He wants to you know, get vengeance. He wants to... Doesn't he want to duel him? Yeah, okay. he wants to defend his sister's honor, but he just he's can't... demanding satisfaction. Yeah, but he's not strong enough. I mean, he's a kid, and Dalton Ames is a man, and he gets kind of humiliated. He faints, actually, when he when he gets to the point of confronting Dalton. It's very embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> so, all that to say, um, I think he identifies with Henry a lot, but, but Henry seems to have gone through with it. You know, Charles Bond was somehow or other going to insult Judith's honor or the family's honor or do something beyond the pale. And Henry shoots Charles Bond dead. Like a, like, did you say like a, like a beef? (laughs) How does Flash put it? Killed him dead as beef. Dead as beef. (laughs) But uh, I think that's part of why Quentin's suitable, you know, because he he relates so intensely to the story. Um, there's actually something I read today, an article um, that talks about uh, all the the doubling in the in the book. In other words, characters who are parallel to each other in some way or yes. another. And it said, "Well, I'll just read it." This is from um, a piece by Eric Sundquist. Um, it says. What, what Mr. Compson speaks of is Rosa Col- Colfield's vicarious bridal, as well as a vicarious image of himself and Bond, with which he claims Henry Sutpen has seduced his own sister. So in other words, you've got Rosa Colfield living vicariously through Judith. You've got, and Ellen probably, you've got Henry Sutpen living vicariously, vicariously through Bond and kind of seducing his own sister. And then he says both of those things describes the pervasive narcissism of the novel's relationships. Um, Every character is the potential or implied double of another character because these characters are narcissistic enough that they can't help but see themselves in other people. And I think that's particularly true of Quentin. He's obsessed with his own 
troubles and he can't help but see those troubles in, in Henry's situation. And, I, you know, I think about why is this story being told, you know, specifically in the context of this novel? Well, it goes to page 142. It says, this is Shreve talking to Quentin. Tell me about the South. What's it like there? What do they do there? Why do they live there? Why do they live at all? And I mentioned that on the Zero episode because I think that that is really the the genesis of this entire story is Quentin wants Shreve not just to understand his life, he wants him to be in it not just in the present in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He, he wants him to, you know, I, I used the word reenact uh, on the last episode. He wants to reenact history with him, I think in part, like Whitney is saying, to try and come up with a different outcome for himself and Caddy, uh, you know, and, and, and say there's, you know, he's going to kill his, his um, sister's, you know, the man that would, that would steal his sister's honor, so to speak. Um, and, and, and there's this element of maybe Quentin does sympathize with Henry before he meets him. And when he meets him, there's this element of he's this like, like, I just think about the guy that's dying of sloth in the movie seven, that's not dead yet, but they bring in this SWAT team and it's like one of the most jump, jump scare moments in a movie that doesn't really have jump scares. Um, but I just think of him as being like that close to dead that he looks dead. The yellow face on the yellow sheets. Yes. And, and, and just this element of, and I mentioned this in the last episode, Henry being the Confederacy, that the, the Confederacy didn't die until all of its soldiers died. I mean, I would say that's the first, the first step to say the Confederacy was over. Now you still see Confederate flags these days, but you know, no, no one that flies a flag, Confederate flag was a part of the Confederacy. Now, their 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 um, ancestors may have been, you know, but in in terms of the the Confederacy as a place and as a mindset and as a nation and all these things, you know, Henry he's not the last one to die, but he certainly outlived a lot of them to have lived, you know, almost sixty years past the Civil War, and so. This idea of Henry dying in, in 1909, you know, maybe Quentin can start uh, looking for someone else to live his life through besides Henry Sutpin. And I, I don't think Quentin is obsessed with him, has obsessed on Henry, Henry Sutpin exclusively his whole life. I think uh, Quentin, in many ways, just like many college freshmen, he is living his life in antithesis to what he doesn't want to be. Um, and one of the things he does not want to be is his father, who is an alcoholic, basically a non-practicing lawyer. So he gets drunk all the time. I don't know how he has any money. They eventually sell part of the land to, to you know, to, to make a golf course. Um, and, and, and so, and, well, and to, I guess, to pay for Quentin. That's to pay for Quentin to go to Harvard, right? And to pay for Caddy's wedding yes, as well. Yes, yes. And so um, there's an element of, Jason Compson the third does have access to some money, but he he's basically 
he's a non-practicing lawyer. I mean, he's someone that's trained to do it, but he won't do it because, not because he's necessarily lazy. I think he just is so nihilistic, he doesn't see the point in it. And Jason says in Sound and the Fury to Quentin, something like, life is just something you have to endure for a little while. And Quentin says, I'm paraphrasing, Quentin says, well, if you have courage, not even for that long. So Quentin, you know, he's on the on the path to suicide um, in these scenes that are depicted in Absalom, Absalom. We know that from The Sound and the Fury. But he has decided that his father has endured life nihilistically for a long time now, and he's not going to go down that path. That maybe the opposite of what his father did is to take the reins of life one last time, so to speak, and, and kill himself, and that's what he does. You know, <clears throat> I heard a, a song this this morning when I was swimming. Well, I know you think, how could I hear it while swimming? Well, when I would stop in between laps, I would hear it. And it had this phrase, and it, you know, it made me think, some will win, some will lose, some are born to sing the blues. That's Journey, Don't Stop Believing, by the way. Uh, but... It just it hit different with me today, and I'll tell you why. Because part of me thinks I am born to sing the blues. I like singing. I seem to come up with rather heavy material in some of my songs, um, but I don't think I was born to do that. Uh, but you know, pe- people are not born to win or born to lose. I think there are winners and losers in life, and a lot of that has to do with the way you look at your life. If you look at your life as a tragedy and as a possibility, you know, one possibility after another to be a victim, you will constantly, you know, that it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You'll, you'll, you will be the victim. You will be the loser. And, and there are other people who live to win. And, um, you know, I think Thomas Sutpin and Charles Bond, I meant to mention this last episode, I think they both are people who make things happen. And when one thing happens to them, it kind of, I don't want to say it paralyzes them, but it kind of just throws them off to, you know, to, to, their, to their plan to the point where they can't even, like Thomas Sutton can't even explain, well, I, I just can't see where I went wrong, you know. It's like the power of positive thinking yes, or something yes. has failed because you can't control everything and... You can't walk back your mistakes. You have to cope yeah. with the consequences of your mistakes. And it almost seems to me like, this is going back to Sutton, but it's like yeah. he doubles down on his mistake. Like, if you take it that his mistake was repudiating his first wife and son and thinking this won't have any consequences, then he does the same thing with Wash's granddaughter and his new yes. child. Yes. And he's like, this Great won't point. have any consequences. And he dies from the consequences. Yeah. Well, in some ways, he did die in Haiti. I mean, he had to just get out of there. You know, he he didn't stay there, and that's because the the design was was not going to work there. Now, maybe he thought he had to go there in order to come back to America and in the South specifically, to you know, a made man, so that he was he was kind of not untouchable, but he he was above um, suspicion. I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm just going to go with it. And so, you know, I think that in this novel, dare I say it, Steve Perry, you were right, man. 
some will win, some will lose, some are born to sing the blues. And and I don't know if Quentin is a winner, a loser, or a blues singer, but he seems to be singing the blues of these multi-generations of Mississippi people who are long, I mean, you know, Sutton's long gone, and, and even Henry, you know, is dead, and Rosa Goldfield is dead, but yet their ghosts, and we've used that word several times, seem not just to haunt him, but to direct him. And so um, I, I found this, uh, you know, this is one of the most moving points. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to do a little two birds with one stone here. Wait, I tell you, Quentin said. This is page 222. 222. Wait, I tell you, Quentin said, though still he did not move nor even raise his voice, that voice with its tense, suffused, restraining quality. I am telling. Now, on the text, it goes into italics. It says, am I going to have to hear it all again? He thought, I am going to have to hear it all over again. I am already hearing it all over again. I am listening to it all over again. I shall have to never listen to anything else but this forever, this again forever. So apparently not only a man never outlives his father, but not even his friends and his acquaintances do. And I think that that's a really powerful moment in the novel because Quentin at that point is shifting out of this singing the blues of the past into a I'm a loser. And I think that, I don't think he's killing himself because he's a loser. I think, I think Quentin cannot, he, he's drowning in life. And he's drowning in life because so much of his life is the past that he wasn't even present for. He is you know, born in approximately 1890. So, so much of his life is told to him by people like Rosa Coldfield who just, fire hose him with the past and and you know all he can say is yes um yes um yes um and and if you know any elderly people which i think hopefully most everybody does uh but you know especially non-relatives if they start talking to you they'll just tell you their life story i mean i talked to this guy today in the locker room after i swam who just told me all, all sorts of things about himself and i think that people when they get older want not just to be known, but they want what happened to them and what, what they did. And, and that's why I say, you know, some people do things and some people uh, receive things. But I think that they, they want those touchstone moments in their life to be known, not just by their family, but by people, because it helps, it helps them feel like they've been dignified. Like they've, someone saw their dignity by seeing I know I look like an old man right now, and I can't, you know, I'm almost drowning swimming back and forth the pool. But at one point, you know, I, this guy, for example, was in the Air Force. And so, you know, who we were, the older we get, is what we want people to know us as. Not who we necessarily are at, at the present, although this guy, he's 80 years old, he's, you know, he's still working, he's home designer. I, I learned a lot of lot about people when they just start talking to me and and it's beautiful because it just shows that that here's someone that wants to be known and I think that Quentin is such an open person that people want to tell him in a way that they they wouldn't tell anybody you know they would just tell the kind of person that would be receptive to them and Rosa was waiting for that person to just 
unload all of this story on. And, of course, we talked about that already with Rosa and with the introduction. She doesn't know the whole story, nor does Jason, the father, know the whole story. And Quentin and Shreve really try to build the rest of this story out of speculation. And yet, I go back to my quote, you know, I am listening to it all over again. I shall have to never listen to anything else but this again forever. So apparently not only a man never outlives his father, but not even his friends or acquaint- and acquaintances do. I think Quentin, there's a part of him that wants to tell the story to Shreve so that Shreve understands Quentin. And, of course, I, I read those, those questions from page 142. Um, why did they live at all? You know, why do people live there? Like, what, what do they do there? What is the South like? I mean, that's, that's, if you had to say, what is this book? It's an answer to those questions. But it's not just anybody's answer. It's Quentin's answer. And I think that Quentin shares this with Shreve in order to get not just empathy, but like I said, to bring Shreve into his life in Mississippi in the past so that Shreve will walk, you know, next to him just like Bond and and Henry do because Quentin wants that companionship, not just sympathy, but true, um, you know, like being on the same wavelength or being kindred spirits. I think he's kind of pulling Shreve into that. And I also mentioned the word weight because I started a weight counter. There are so many weights in this book. It's probably the most used book. I mean, what most used word in the book besides the word effluvium. And weight is just constantly used by Shreve. Weight, weight. But see, here's Quentin saying it. And there's this element of both of them get going on the story and the other one needs to like slow down the pace. So Whitney, talk to us about Quentin and Shreve telling this story. What kind of vibe do you get from them and like just your reaction to the actual telling of the story and who's telling what parts and what were you surprised, especially that, that Shreve tells so much of it instead of Quentin? Um. Yeah, I mean, it is surprising, except when you realize that, like, even with the weight situation, it seemed it seemed like when Shreve is saying weight, he's resting control of the narrative, so it's more, like, juicy and satisfying to him. Like, I think he's, yes. I think Shreve is having fun the whole time, you know, he's enjoying it. So, a lot of the time, Shreve will be like, wait, wait, don't tell me yet, don't reveal it yet, let's drag this out a little longer, let's not move on yet, let's just wallow in this part of the story longer. Like, he's really enjoying it. I don't think Quentin is enjoying this process so much as he just feels compelled to go through it. And sometimes he'll say wait, and his way of what his reason for saying wait is like, Shreve, shut up, stop taking the story from me. Like, I'm not done telling my part of it yet. Um, Quentin, it just seems like he has trouble not being imposed upon because he, like, always is saying, my father said, my father said, my father said, and just echoing his father. And it seems like when you read The Sound of the Fury that in his childhood, Caddy really kind of imposed upon him. Caddy's such a strong personality. Um, I think that he doesn't really know how to not be imposed upon by other people, and now Sharif is, is doing it. And I think even the last words of the book are him trying to resist being imposed upon by Sharif and Sharif, like, imposing an attitude on him. Shreve clearly has this attitude that's a, a mixture of, wow, 
the South is horrible. Like, how do people even stand it there? And, wow, the South is so, like, juicy. It must feel like you're living in a Shakespeare play. Like, how epic. That's cool. He wants to get the tea. And he is, it's interesting, too, because it's almost like, because he's from Canada, he's not even from the United States, maybe it's a little less condescending than for, like, just a northerner to be saying these things to to Quentin, you know? Um because he's looking at it from this like just more detached sociological perspective, seemingly. But it does seem like they're getting very different things out of the story. It's so interesting how emphasized it is how um, Shreve looks, whereas we're not told how Quentin looks in that whole part. But we keep hearing about how Shreve, he's sitting there without a shirt on, and it's like freezing outside and in the room, really, too. But he's like, pink and chubby and round faced and he's you know just sitting there with his shirt off and seems to be really just a picture of like health and and reveling pleasure and what he's doing whereas Quentin is like staring with this fixed stare the whole time in this way that really does not indicate that he is enjoying himself whatsoever he's staring at his father's letter on the table a lot of the time yesterday or yeah I guess it was yesterday we recorded the last episode I said the Quentin very early in the book is described as a barracks filled with stubborn back-looking ghosts mm-hmm. still recovering from the Civil War. But I do think that Quentin gets a little bit of catharsis out of living through these older stories because he kind of just doesn't know who, how to be himself. So, But living through older stories that were before your lifetime is a lot safer than living through your own past that's like going to cause you a more poignant pain. Because I noticed in The Sound and the Fury that Quentin is not seeming to tell Shreve anything about Caddy. Like, Shreve seems in the dark about how upset Quentin is about everything with Caddy. Quentin is telling him the story about Henry as a way of hinting at how hard it is to be in his situation and to be from where he's from. But he's not telling him the real, like, root problem and Sharif cares about Quentin I don't know how much that comes through in this book because it seems like he's messing with Quentin's head sometimes but in Sound of the Fury it's very evident that Sharif is very loyal to Quentin and he cares about him and looks out for him as best he can as a roommate Mm -hmm. so now you mentioned uh Rosa Colfield's letter which I don't think we talked about it that or the the letter from Jason Constant saying that Rosa Colfield died sorry clarify clarification there that letter transfixes Quentin, and it, it refers to him looking at it time and time and time and time again. And it is this, um, it's, I don't want to call it a trigger, but it's something like a trigger that, that, that just keeps him in this story till it's told. And I think that that's, that's part of what this novel is doing is, you know what, if you don't, watch out, you will get so deep into history and trying to understand it that you cannot move forward. That's why he commits suicide, seemingly, as he sees no future for himself. And he... Okay, I'll just throw this into just something else to think about. Um, Jason tells him, Quentin, what you're really upset about is that you're not going to be this upset about this forever. He says, you can't stand the thought that you won't be this outraged about Caddy and this devastated about Caddy forever. 
which is interesting. To me, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I just, I find it hard. Every character in this, in this entire novel and every character in most of Faulkner is very hard for me to envision because Faulkner, I just think, he just envisions these characters like, like they're characters in Andrew Wyeth paintings or something like that. It's like, like, like they're somehow um, uh, projections of, like, like, like we said with this this beginning image of the Sound of the Fury. He just had this image in his head of this little girl looking into the window from the tree of her grandmother's funeral and her little brothers, or I guess Quentin's older brother. Um, her brothers and and I guess their house servant looking up at her and seeing sh- her you know her drawers are, are muddy and she's you know she's been playing in the mud and she's you know she's trying to see something new and it's it's very much like a painting it's like he, he thinks about his novel starting with a painting and that's why I say this novel's about portraiture now we don't really get anything to 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 think about what Quentin looks like. I don't know if he wears glasses or not. I don't know how tall he is. I don't know. I mean, you could imagine he probably looks like a young William Faulkner if you want. Um, but there's really no way of knowing Quentin uh, physically. But but I think this, in some ways, this novel is a portrait of why Quentin in The Sound of the Fury is in the mind state he is and ultimately commits suicide. Because I think if you just read the Quentin section of The Sound of the Fury, it feels so out of time. Like, it, it feels, it's, it's, it's you know, t- almost 20 years out of the rest of the time of the novel. And so it just doesn't fit in a way. It fits perfectly because it, it sets up Quentin and it sets up that this family, you know, that has all this brokenness in it, it has already lost one of its members, you know, that 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 the one that that went to Harvard, the best of them, you know, he he didn't he didn't last a year. I mean, he made one one year of Harvard and he committed suicide. And and you know, I I think his suicide in some ways is so stylized in that novel that it doesn't it doesn't hit the way that like spoiler alert, certain character <laughs> a certain character in a star is born, like that suicide hits really hard. Um or you know, any any like famous suicides in, in literature or film or whatever. Partly because it's not depicted in Sound of the Fury. Like, Quentin yeah. is narrating. He can't yeah. narrate his own suicide. Exactly. So it narrates kind of up to mm. a point, mm. and then it sort of stops. And you know it's going to happen because he's so inexorably set on it. He's not hesitating, really. I mean, you know, he's he's just... He, it's like, I read somewhere, someone said he it's like a wall... He thinks of suicide not as a choice, but like as a wall, and he just, it's like in his path, and there's no getting around it, and mm-hmm. he's just to run into it. Yeah, he's either going to run into it or get knocked down by it and, and never get past it. Like, he could attempt suicide but not, not die, but then it would, he'd be trapped. Like, yeah. he's just seen his life already ends at age 20 or whatever like he just already knows it and, and it's it's just inevitable his life has been measured out in coffee spoons to quote the <laughs> love song for proof rock but you know that's why i say this question of some will win some will lose some are born to sing the blues i think if you are a bl- are singing the blues of life i think rosa coldfield is someone that's singing the blues her whole life I mean, you could call her a loser if you wanted to 
but in a way, she kind of is a winner. But in a way, she, I don't know. She's singing the blues of the Confederacy, writing all these poems, and 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 um, and so you know, I think there's a danger in trying to shift your life narrative from loser to winner, from victim to a, you know hero, or from um, you know observer to participant. Um, there's a danger in that. And I think some people really struggle when they try to change their mindset. And I think that's why suicide is such a danger for people that are trying to make big life changes. Like I, I knew someone that committed suicide um, that like lost a ton of weight and, and, you know, like lost over a hundred pounds and you would think, Oh gosh, that person's life would be a lot better. Well, that person I think really struggled with who was she? Was she the person that was more overweight or was she this new person? And that's why, especially with college students, they are not formed. And, and, you know, Whitney, of course, is dealing with high school students, and they certainly are not formed either. And that's why there's such a danger of of self-harm and suicide in, in this age range that we work with so heavily because people are not fully formed and fully kind of crystallized into their identities and you know that that's where Quentin is. He's he's 19, 20 years old. He keeps calling him 20, but he it says he was born in 1891 and he died in 1910. So you're the numbers guy. I'm the numbers guy. But um, but I you know I I think that sh- that Quentin it in some ways is is it's almost like Faulkner didn't do Quentin justice in The Sound of the Fury. And so we needed another novel to be like, no, you need to understand this character more. It's like if you don't give yourself a chance to get older, you know, like like Quentin, you you fling, fling life away from you. I think sometimes it's because when you get older, you realize that you really can change or that your circumstances can change. Yeah. You know, that there's the possibility of change. You don't feel so so trapped as you do when you're young, I think. Well, on page 224, it says, No, Shreve said, this is at the bottom, No, Shreve said, you wait. Let me play a while. Now Wash, him, the demon, standing there with the horse, the saddle charger, the sheath saber, the gray waiting to be laid peaceful away among the moss and all the lost saved dishonor, then the voice of the faithful gravedigger who opened the play and would and would close it coming out of the wings like Shakespeare's very self. Well, Colonel, they might have whipped us, but they ain't killed us yet, are they? I tried. Um, the, that little passage right there is, is, is Shreve in a, in a nutshell. Shreve is still a child. He is thinking of this as play. Quentin does not think this is a game. He is reenacting it. I think the way that people reenact the Civil War or whatever else they reenact other than the Civil War as a way to to see if the outcome will change. Or it's like the, there's some some element of like wanting to to stir up history and see if the recipe comes out differently. And Shreve is playing, and I think that that's Quentin is not playing. Shreve is playing. There's a, a fundamental disconnect at what they are doing. And I, I think that that's a powerful passage because he mentions the voice of the faithful gravedigger who opened the play and would close it coming out of the wings like Shakespeare's very self. Here is this character that's not the tragic hero. 
he's the one making jokes in the graveyard after the tragic hero's dead, or in, in Hamlet's case, he's not dead, uh, but he's joking about Hamlet's court jester, and Hamlet's like, hold on now, this guy was important. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well, and it makes me think of the the Crane Boys and you know how they lost a uh, skull and then they thought someone murdered someone in the house they grew up in. Episode, I don't know, it's like season eleven of Frasier. But the, the Cheers multiverse comes up a lot in this podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> but that I think is a powerful thing because. Shreve wants to look at this through the lens of a Shakespearean play. And a Shakespearean play is very different from a Greek tragedy. And and Greek tragedies don't have humorous characters. Whereas Shakespeare is entertaining. And, you know, I think that's, that's part of what this novel is doing. It's trying to have this little dose of entertainment in it. I mean, there's, there's no reason that Faulkner would have written, well, Colonel... They might have whipped us, but they ain't killed us yet, are they? I mean, why would he write that in dialect like that except to to have a little bit of, like, humor that Wash Jones is kind of rednecky or whatever. Like, he, he seems less refined than Thomas Sutpen. And then he kind of is looking to live vicariously through Thomas Sutpen. Speaking of vicarious living, yes. you know, um, making Doubles. hero <laughs> worshiping him and everything. There, um... I don't even know what to make of this moment, really, but there's this weird moment where uh, the the narrator kind of intrudes and says, Shreve was 19, a few months younger than Quentin. He looked exactly 19. Yes. He was one of those people whose correct age you never know because they looked exactly their correct age. And so you tell yourself, he can't be that age because he looks too much like that age. I've no, I don't think I've ever had that experience of looking at someone and saying, boy, you sure do look exactly 11. You couldn't possibly be 11. You look too 11. Like, I don't really understand that impulse. But it goes on to just make a point that at this point, they're not even really individuals. They're more or less twins. They're just young together in the room. Um, But I really kind of don't think they're having the same experience. Like, it says on page 253 that they're creating this shade whom they discussed, rather, existed in, um, and that they're discarding the faults and conserving what seemed true or what fit the preconceived. So I was interested in that concept of them. They're existing in Bond and Henry. They're not just discussing them. And it's like, to me, it feels like you know, normally you think of a ghost possessing you, like as if Henry and Bond's spirit showed up in the dorm room and started possessing these two, but it's the opposite. They jump back and they possess yes, the ghosts. Point. I don't really... Yeah. The, the experience they're having, I guess, you know, possessing the ghost, that could lend itself to a play acting and pretending like it does with Shreve, or it could lend yeah. itself to losing yourself, mm-hmm. which is what it does with Quentin. And I guess kind of like the the balance to that is what history is, which is this element of thinking you think you control us, but <laughs> not so fast. Like we can go. We're back your and, father. Yeah, we, like, yeah, yeah. We can we can de- you know determine whether you're a sin, uh, you know sinner or a saint or what you know. It's like we're gonna 
you know, go back in time and, you know, show how evil this person was that mm-hmm. was like the, you know, the, the greatest person of his, his or her generation. But it's and like maybe we're cursed to the third or fourth generation by the people who came before us and we yes. can't help but live in the world they created for. Like who's in charge, us or the people in the past? Who has the balance, whose balance of power, you know, where's it shifting? And, and you know, the... the so much of this novel is about the past, but it really is about the moment. It's about the distant past, and it's about the moment. And I think that Faulkner is setting up this dichotomy of you can be fully alive in the moment, or you can be fully alive in the past, but you got to pick one. Mm-hmm. Because they are not fully alive in the moment. At some point, Shreve is like, oh, let's get out of this dang icebox. He has not realized how cold he has been because he was not living in the moment. He was living in the story. And... and that I think Quentin Shreve Shreve doesn't mind that that bounce between play acting and 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 noticing his surroundings, whereas Quentin seems to just he, he doesn't think he can go back and forth between the two. And I you know I was just thinking Quentin commits suicide in June of 1910. I think it's no surprise that he waits till the end of the school year to do it, because he's got to go back to Mississippi. He's got to go back and not just not just think about the ghosts and think about his father and his sister and, you know, whether or not she's, you know, promiscuous or not. You know, he's got to go back and live in it. And there's he's going to be in the moment and in the past, you know, overlapping, which is really I think that's why he's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He did not go to Harvard because it was the best school in the country. He went. And, and is Harvard the best school in the country? Mm, probably not, but it thinks it is. But in terms of Quentin is there to escape Mississippi, and I think he picked the college that he could get the farthest from that would make sense to his family to sell their land for. He did not go to, and I mentioned Vanderbilt because Vanderbilt's like not that far from Mississippi. Or Sewanee. I think yeah. that's where Jason, his father went. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Interesting. And so there's this element of there's there are these good, you know, private school colleges in Tennessee. And, and I mean, I don't know what was in Mississippi at that time, uh, but there certainly were good schools that he could have gone to and escaped his his world. But I think he thought if he got far enough away from it in distance, it would not haunt him as vividly. And, and yet, I think a lot of people have to learn that lesson the hard way. The farther away you go from home, the more hold it has on you because it's very hard to truly be yourself in a new place that far from home. It's too much culture shock. And it's too different. And you're like, I don't, I just don't know. I, I, this isn't, you know, you think you've like found your tribe and then you find out that tribe is a, you know, a gang that is, you know, killing each other, <laughs> you know, and destroying each other's souls and reputations and, and you know, uh, will will to stay. People don't know what to make of you in the new place, yeah. I think, which can be very, like, alienating. It's like mm-hmm. sometimes when you're at home in a small town, people know too much what to make of you. You feel trapped and pinned down and, you know, all that. But, like, in The Sound of the Fury, when Quentin is just going about his day, um, you see, like, for one thing, he's talking to a stranger and are these three boys who are going to go, like, swimming. 
And they're like, you talk like a black man because he's from the South and oh, that's kind of their association. So that's confusing for him, I think. And then um, the the friends he's making, like he kind of gets stuck being friends with this guy who's also from the South because this guy's mother is really overbearing. And he's like, she's like, you can only be friends with like good well, boys from gosh. the South. You know? <laughs> so he seems like he's kind of fallen into these like relationships. He doesn't even want, and he just doesn't know how to like actually create a new life for himself. And I think that it's very indicative that when, you know, Shreve is like, it's freezing in here. And he goes and gets like a bathrobe and an overcoat to put on to warm up. And he tries to give Quentin a coat and Quentin just lets it fall on the ground and won't even put it on. Then they finally go get in bed, and Shreve's like, that's better. I'm warm now. And then Quentin is shivering violently, like mm-hmm. like he's ill. And he just, in, it's like in Quentin's mind, he's still in the snow in the Civil War on a horse mm-hmm. being Henry. You know, like he can't break out of it. Whereas Shreve is like, oh, that's better. Like bedtime story over. I'm cozy in my bed. There's such a contrast. Well, and that's at the very end, right? Mm-hmm. It says, it's page 288 for those following in the vintage edition with the statue on the front. I didn't know there were 10 in Mississippi that went to school at one time, Shreve said. What a jerk. Qu- Quentin didn't answer. I mean, Qu- Quentin's at Harvard. Like, there there are smart people in all parts of the nation. There are, there are people that do not use their minds for what they could when I went to When I went to grad school... Um, someone said to me, wow, when I uh, first heard you talk in class, I thought you must be dumb because of your accent. But then I listened to what you were saying and you weren't dumb. And I was like, I got into the same graduate program that you did. Like, you only have to think about that for just a moment. But that's a all the way from 1910 until, you know, the early years of this century. That's a stereotype. People are pretty comfortable voicing. And, of course, you know, I think, well, first time I heard her talk, I fell in love with her. Um, but he says, I didn't know there were 10 in Mississippi that went to school at one time, Shreve said. Quentin didn't answer. He lay watching the rectangle of window, feeling the warm, warming blood driving through his veins, his arms, and legs. And now, although he was warm, and though while he had sat in the cold room, he merely shook faintly and steadily, now he began to jerk all over violently and uncontrollably until he could not even hear the bed. Sorry, until he could even hear the bed, until Shreve felt it and turned, raising himself by the sound onto his elbow to look at Quentin, though Quentin himself felt perfectly all right. He felt fine even, lying there and waiting in peaceful curiosity for the next violent, unharbingered jerk to come. Poor Quentin. And, and I, I wrote on there, seizure, question mark? I, I wonder, and of course this is just, you know, wanton speculation. I wonder if Quentin has some sort of, you know, epilepsy, like maybe it's temporal lobe epilepsy, where he can go into these places and like be fully present in, in the conversation. And then when he comes out of it, it, it's so jarring that he just can't. He can't handle being jarred from, you know, getting engaged to. Uh, I saw I saw a thing on Facebook today that said, um, "You don't have to in, you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to." And I think that that's that's also true of this novel. You don't have to attend every um, what, what what do you call like a, a 
re re whatever reanimating a ghost or whatever a seance like, yes you don't have to it, you don't have to attend every seance you're invited to <laughs> and i think that that's that's an element of this quentin it's not good for his mental health to talk about this with shreve shreve is not affected by it mentally the way the way quentin is and i think that that moment where he just I mean, he's jerking all over violently and uncontrollably and could he, he, until he could even hear the bed. That's not just shivering cold. That's, that's something more happening to him, and maybe it's something, you know, a physical seizure. Uh, I, I don't know for sure. I'm not a doctor. But, um, but I do think that there's something to be said for that moment. It's, it, it's happened so late in the book, and yet here in the moment why is this happening to Quentin at this moment? I think it's partly because Shreve said, I didn't know there were 10 in Mississippi that went to school at one time. And so I wrote at the top of this page, is this novel, parentheses, and Faulkner's whole career, in parentheses, a refutation of the prejudice against Southern intellects? Because if someone had, you know, if you want to say who is the, who is the greatest American writer of all time, most most literature professors would say William Faulkner. Um, and, and I don't know if I agree, because like I said, I haven't read all of Faulkner, and I haven't read all of anybody, but um, he's certainly in contention. Uh, for anybody that knows anything about literature, he's in contention. And, and I do think that that question, I mean, Faulkner chose to write that question into, Swinton's, into Shreve's mouth, but he also chose to write Quentin's response, which is to go into like, uh, you know, a full body shaking uncontrollably, and I think that's part of Shreve doesn't understand how offensive it is to to say that the whole South is ignorant. And, you know, ultimately, everyone is ignorant of something and everyone knows something. But there was, like Whitney said, a cultural bias against the South because they lost the Civil War that said it's okay to put down Southerners because they dared to, you know, uh, secede from the Union, and they dared to have slavery, they dared to fight back when we, you know, told them they couldn't secede. And and so, the, you know, to the third and fourth generation, yes, Southerners, even till today, you know, Whitney told a story a hundred years after this novel is set, where people are just... They're proud of their prejudices, and and I think that this novel is really attacking that, and really saying, what's the use in being proud of your prejudice, or being you know, or living in in uh, you know, living through or seeing the world through stereotypes, and so that moment really precipitates this ending, um, where you know he tells the story of going to Sutphin's Hundred, and and then here's this questioning, um, Shreve says. <laughs> He says, all right, I'm just going to read this whole thing. All right, but let me know if you want the coats. Jesus, if I was going to have to spend nine months in this climate, I sh would sure hate to have come from the South. Maybe I wouldn't come from the South anyway, even if I could stay there. Wait, listen, I'm not trying to be funny, smart. I just want to understand it if I can, and I don't know how to say it better because it's something my people haven't got. Or if we have got it, it all happened long ago across across the water, and so now there ain't anything to look at every day to remind us of it. 
We don't live among defeated grandfathers and freed slaves or have... I'm getting emotional here just reading it. Or have I got it backward? And was it your folks that are free and the N-words that lost and bullets in the dining room table and such to be... to be always reminding us to never forget what is it? Something you live and breathe in like air? A kind of vacuum filled with wraith-like and indomitable anger and pride and glory it and in happenings that occurred and ceased 50 years ago? A kind of entailed birthright father and son and father and son of never forgiving General Sherman so that forevermore, as long as your children's children produce children, you won't be anything but a descendant of a long line of colonels killed in Pickett's Charge at Manassas? And then Quentin goes, Gettysburg, you can't understand it. You would have to be born there. And then Shreve says, would I then? And says, Quentin did not answer. Then he says, so Shreve says, do you understand it? And says, I don't know, Quentin said. Yes, of course I understand it. They breathed in the darkness. After a moment, Quentin said, I don't know. And I think that's what's so powerful about this novel. Quentin can't decide if he understands it or not because history is too complex and we can't perfect it. And anybody that thinks they can is not humble enough and you don't need to listen to them. Anyone that says, you know, fill in the blank, matters. Fill in the blank doesn't matter. Fill in the blank is better than so-and-so. Fill in the blank can't be better than so-and-so. Fill in the blank are equal. You know, do they have the bullets in their dining room tables? You know, this is just, it's something that we will never heal from until we truly, truly understand how pervasive a war in this country was on our national identity for every person involved before the war that precipitated the war, you know, during the war that fought the war and witnessed the war and, and you know, good, good you Holfield, Coldfield, you know, putting himself in the attic to, to you know, object. Uh, people that lived after the war, you know, obviously in, in the, the Reconstruction era. And, and, you know, here we are, 150 what, 155 years after the Civil War is over, we are still reconciling that war. And I think that, you know, here is Shreve trying to understand it, but Quentin can't even decide if he understands it, and he's living it 24-7, and it kills him. I mean, I don't. I, I think it's, he's not killing himself so much as he's trying to kill the past or trying to kill the limit that the past puts on his future. And, you know, that's, that's not a good enough reason to kill yourself, but it's, it's a very powerful reason that I think as you read this book, it really shows you Quentin Compson is this very heavy person that needs lightness, and Shreve just doesn't get it because he thinks they're playing. I think it's, I really think it's psychologically more difficult to be humble in your attitude toward the past. I think it's more viscerally satisfying and easy to be judgmental or like quick and sharp and just draw a conclusion about the past. Um, 
one example of that that I've been thinking about today, based on some reading I was doing, was Abraham Lincoln. I think that um, we we need heroes as a culture, and we want Abraham Lincoln to be one of our heroes. And Abraham Lincoln was so eloquent and so sad, and he's a martyr. And so there's so many reasons to make him a, a hero, and he deserves it in a lot of ways. He's on the right side of history, so to speak, you know. But I was reading this morning about how Abraham Lincoln, when he was, you know, doing the famous Stephen Douglas debates and, and running for office and everything, um, he was accused by Stephen Douglas of being in favor of miscegenation. In other words, and being in favor of just blending the races, mm-hmm. and like abol- abolishing slavery and just blending the races and having this, like, diverse America. And he, Abraham Lincoln, you know, I mean, he knew he couldn't get elected if he believed in that, so that might have factored in. But he was like, no, 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 I don't at all believe in miscegenation. And he said, just because I don't want to own a woman, that doesn't mean I want to make that woman my wife. I just don't think I should own her. But all this to say, the judgment of history, if we look at Abraham Lincoln humbly and realistically and complexly, is going to be more complicated than just hero worship. And I think that's okay because one thing that Abraham Lincoln really had a vision to do was to try to undo slavery like it never happened. He wanted to create colonies and send all of the slaves back out of America. Like Liberia and Africa was named that as a free, you know, it's it's Latin for freedom. And And Haiti was one of the places that he envisioned sending them. And, you know, I think that's the dream, right? You erase history. That was Thomas Sutpen's dream, too, for his own personal life. Abraham Lincoln looked at the thorny mess we had made of America already, and he said, we had to find a way to just cancel this as if we never did it because it's like our founding mistake, you know, like our founding sin is that we created this country we imported people, and now they don't. We don't know what to do with it, and so let's just undo it and send them somewhere else. I think today, that doesn't jive with how we think, right? We think right. that like diversity is a strength, and we think that you know we should never treat people like they should be just sent away to live in their own little corners right. like ethnically it would, it would or be something. Racist to say that you know. A certain race needs to, like you're saying, needs to live in a certain part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, when you look back at a figure like Abraham Lincoln, it's more psychologically trying to look at him in all of his wrinkles and complexities than it is to just look at him as as a hero. And I think that Quentin is really being, um, to some degree, crushed by the complexity of, of how he's being asked to look at the history of his country. And, you know, I was thinking about the last page or two of the book um, when Shreve is still having fun, and he says this thing that really struck me, um, which is all right, it's fine, it clears the whole ledger. You can tear all the pages out and burn them, except for one thing. You've got Jim Bond left over. Like, Shreve is thinking, wow, we're wrapping up this story beautifully, right? Yes. We're clearing the whole ledger. This is about to really 
be a satisfying ending. But then I just remembered that there's just this Sudpin left, Jim Bond. What do we do about Jim Bond? For one thing, the fact that he's thinking about it as like a story that can wrap up beautifully. And then he, he talks about it like a ledger, like he's an accountant and he's trying to balance the books mm-hmm. and make everything come out perfectly. But then he's like, oh, no, we've got this sort of remainder, Jim Bond left yes. over. And he's like, you know, you know what I think. And do you want to know what I think? And Quentin says, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, poor Quentin. Like, he probably really doesn't even want to know at this point. But Shreve's going to tell him. And Shreve's like, you know what I think? Jim Bonds are going to conquer the Western Hemisphere. Jim Bonds are going to be the new kings. They're going to take over the world. Like, they're going to control the narrative one day. I think a lot of people love this book because they read it as... Oh, this is amazing. The like mixed race kids of a Thomas Sutpen take over the narrative and win and outlive him and it flips the tables and it's beautiful. Um, th- but the vision, I think Shreve is being ironic or, or um, sardonic or something Interesting. when he says this more than he's being sincere. Um, and then the last thing he says is, I mean, okay, he says, this just sounds very, like, sarcastic and humorous to me. He says, In a few thousand years, I who regard you will also have sprung from the loins of African kings. And that's just goofiness because it's like saying the future men are the fathers of the past men mm-hmm. um, instead of vice versa. So yeah. there's a kind of, yeah. like, illogic to it. And then the next thing he says is, Why do you hate the South? Um, this uh, This alternate vision... I'm cons- I, I'm concerned, I guess, about that reading that says that this is like a triumph of intersectionality over homogeneity or whatever, because I feel like um, th- there's a tragedy in the way that what happens to Sutpen and what happens to Quentin are depicted that it's, it's not a triumph per se, in the way that, like, like a Faulkner's agenda in writing this book had yeah. been to show that, like, the, the women and the minorities get to turn the tables on the patriarchy. You know, it, it's, it's real. that's an oversimplifying perspective, even though I think that, to some degree, it happens. Well, and all it is is he's born long after Sutton's dead. Okay, he's born in 1882, and in 1910... He's basically, like, running around. I think Jim Bond is, like, you know, supposed to be mentally handicapped. Yeah, he's like Benji, yeah. I think, to some degree. Except he, I don't think he's been castrated like yeah. Benji. Um, and he wasn't named Mari to begin with. So w- what are you saying if you say the whole Western Hemisphere is going to be taken over by people who are mentally handicapped? That seems unlikely. Um, but like It's a degeneration <laughs> narrative, and it seems like something you say to be almost like a comically pessimistic prophet. Mm. Mm. Not something you say to say, like, this is going to be the triumph of of the oppressed over the oppressor. Well, and, you know, I I just looked up 1882 because that's, you know, I just thought, well, that's when Jim Bond's born. I wonder what happened then. Aha, Immigration Act of 1882. Well, there you go. That slows down. um, I think it slowed down the immigration that had been coming to America, um, and also happening in, hey, the Gilded Age, the Gilded Youth, um, also happening in 1882, uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is born, 
Uh, and guess who's president when this novel is written? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And so uh, there's this element, you know, one of the first things that happens in um, Aha, Standard Oil Trust is secretly created to control multiple corporations set up by John D. Rockefeller in January of 1882. So it looks like 1882 has got some uh, interesting moments in its history. Also, Charles Guiteau is found guilty of the assassination of James Garfield. Uh, shout out to Richard Minky, uh, despite an insanity defense raised by his lawyer. Um, but uh, this... This idea that the Jim Bonds will rule the world it is, a, it, like you were saying, it's a farce. He's, he's saying it, I mean, and, and I think this is something you have to remember about this novel. These are two college kids talking late in the night. Now, I stayed up late talking to my roommates and friends. Sometimes we said some pretty hilarious stuff, but a lot of times we were shooting the breeze, if you know what I mean. Um, and so there's this element of, I think Shreve is kind of just talking to talk at this point like he's not he's not committing to this idea he's just saying it to be you know kind of to, to be outlandish and yet this is such a powerful ending because he says that and then you know he, he says now I want you to tell me just one thing more why do you hate the south and then the ending of the book is I don't hate it Quentin said quickly at once immediately I don't hate it he said and then it goes italics. I don't hate it, he thought, panting in the cold air, the iron New, New England dark. I don't. I don't. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. And this ending is very similar to the ending of Ulysses. Yes, yes, I will. Yes. There's this element of how do you end this novel? And I don't think there's a good way to end this novel because it's like there's, there's no way to, to end this conversation. It's still going on in 2020. It'll be going on in... It, like I said, probably till the end of time. But I think this is, you know, for, for Shreve kind of bouncing between like lucidity and, and silliness, he actually says something really powerful on page 299. He says, do you suppose it was because she knew what was going to happen when she told it, took any steps that it would be over then, finished, and that hating is like a is like drink or drugs, and she had used it so long that she did not dare risk cutting off the supply, destroying the source, the very poppy's root and seed. And I mean, isn't that a powerful metaphor? The hate is its own intoxicant, and you know, when you get around a lot of other people that are hating something, and I think you know, to some extent, there are some people. Hating, like you might say, like the protests that are happening in early June 2000, you know, 2020 are, are based on the hatred of injustice or the hatred of um, the, the, the ignobling of, you know, black male lives, right? You might say those things, but is that really encapsulating the hatred that's happening across America and even across the world right now? No, people hate that the coronavirus happened. They hate that, you know, one person's president or one person's the presidential candidate against him. Or they hate that, um, you know, they're getting done with school and they don't have a job or they lost their job because of this shutdown or all these different things. And when you, when you put yourself with more and more and more people that are hating, you sometimes lose the vision for what you hate, and it's just the hate that, that sinks in. And I think that that's, 
that's what's so powerful about about Shreve's question is he's really questioning did did Rosa choose hate because she she had to she would have to undo her whole life like basically delete the entire novel and start over again and i think that that's really the question that this novel you know is is trying to to resolve that's why the last question is why do you hate the south it's like well the, if you want to say what is this book there you go it's it's an answer to the question why do you hate the south and he can't bring himself to say i love the south you know, to yeah, to counter yeah. fully and reject, um, you know, it, this is a much more ambivalent response, I think. In, in spite of the fact that it feels pretty um, insistent because it's repeated, you know, he, he doesn't say, I don't hate it, I love it. He's like, I don't hate it, I don't hate it, I don't hate it. There's this moment, and I don't know if I can find it, but it talks about rejecting like being maybe Rosa was being punished because she hated her father and you shouldn't reject where you come from. Yeah. Um, your origin. And I think that, Oh yeah. Yeah. I just randomly found it. Amazing. Found it. Um, 137. This is, I think in the Rosa Italica section in the middle of the book. Yeah. Um, it says, as if she had been instinctively right, even as a child, in hating her father. And so these 43 years of impotent and unbearable outrage were the revenge of some sophisticated and ironic, sterile nature on her for having hated that which gave her life. Like, you, you shouldn't hate that which gives you life because it's going to come back to lead you to be full of impotent and unbearable outrage. And, you know, that could be hating your father. I think yeah. to some degree Quentin does hate his father um, and his mother. Actually, his mother is whew, a piece of work. but And is never mentioned in the novel. Well, yeah. No, never mentioned. Never mentioned. And um, hating the place where you're from, your home, you know, that that's something that will come back to bite you in some way. That's proposed, at least, by Rosa. And I think that's one of the lessons to, to learn just about reading history in, in general, but especially from reading this novel, is you do not have to like history. You do not have to like the people that you know were your ancestors and your great-great-great-grandfather or whoever, but you have to love it. If you don't love it, you will never love yourself because you are the you are the accumulation of every person your family tree up to the point that you were born, and that's sometimes it's for better and sometimes for worse. And it's like you have to be married to the past. And I think that um, you know some people just they want to divorce the past. They want to they want to believe that they can you know they can divorce the past. And it's like look at how harmful divorce is in this world, you know. And 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 I, I think that. Sometimes you can let the past be, you know, an abusive spouse. I mean, you know, you can you can let the spouse abuse you to the point where you don't feel like you can exist without it or you, you know, you aren't an independent person or you're codependent to that person or just dependent on the person. And and here are these two young men really asking big questions about life, which is really <laughs> Spoiler alert, that's the best thing you can get out of college is thinking deeply about things that you probably aren't going to be thinking about working at another job as an 18 or 19-year-old. Now, 
doesn't mean you're going to get to read Absalom Absalom, but I do think you 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 have to confront different questions in college than you do in high school, um, and part of it's just in, at your developmental phase. But I think that here they both are really trying to understand the past. Like I don't think Quentin's trying to understand Shreve. It's really Shreve trying to understand Quentin, and they both are trying to understand the past. And to what extent are they, do they love the past? I don't know. I mean, Quentin ends the novel saying, I, I don't hate it. But, I mean, come on. I don't hate it. It's a lot different than I love it. And I think that the past is a powerful thing that we give even more power than it deserves. And sometimes we don't, we don't respect the power that it has. But I think that the concept of our lives are a combination of everything that's come before us the moment we're in and everything that will come after us and what we do in the present can affect generations far beyond us. The way that, you know, people bringing slaves to America in the early 1600s affected America 400 years later. They didn't, they didn't know they were doing that. And, and, you know, when we think about this novel and the way it ends with the two of these people who are, I would call them friends. I mean, they're, they're roommates, they're friends, um, but, but there still is this break between them. They don't, they don't end it on a high note. I think they end it on a, like, um, it's almost like Quentin wants to be like, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Let's stop talking. End period. And you know, the, the name Jim Bond, you know, the name gets changed from bond good to bond and a bond is something you, you know, you buy for the future. There's this. Uh-huh. One of the last things that... Um, and a bond servant is, is a slave. Yeah. 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 Um, but, but a bond servant at least can be freed one day, right? Once the bond True. is paid off. True. Um, I don't know what to make of that exactly, but right, right before Quentin's going to commit suicide at the end of his section of The Sound and the Fury, um, Jason Thompson is saying to him, he's remembering it, Jason Thompson is saying to him... Um, Love, a love or a sorrow is a bond purchased without design and which matures willy-nilly and is recalled without warning to be replaced by whatever issue the gods happen to be floating at the time. So he's making this comparison between, he's really trying to explain to Quentin, you won't feel as strongly forever this despair or remorse or bereavement that you feel right now. And he says, love and sorrow. You just jump into love and sorrow like buying a bond, and you you really don't know what you're getting into. And when it matures, you don't know what currency it's going to pay you back in. It's it's willy-nilly, and you can't control it. So if you invest love or sorrow in someone or something, then you just don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's very unpredictable. And I think Jason would probably say, just try to resist investing love and sorrow. Try to stay stoic and removed. Mm, good point. But yeah. Quentin can't live that way, no. seemingly. Mm-hmm. And Jim Bond is like, in a way, he's like the very unpredictable return on all of Thomas Sutpen's investments. But I think one of the worst things about Thomas Sutpen is that he didn't invest any love or sorrow. He seemed to just invest like selfishness and narcissism and desire for power and things like that, like greed. 
Um, I just don't think he was investing love, you know, or, mm. or acting out of love. Even all those children he fathered, none of them had, were the product of, of love. And I think you bring up a, a great point. I guess it's kind of a good ending point. The more love and sorrow you invest in the past, the less you have to invest in the present. Now, I, I did say, I know I said this, I just said it, love the past. You can't deny the past. The past happened. But you can love it in a way that says, I'm going to flourish because I know you exist but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to develop into my own person and I'm going to let you inform me, but not cripple me or exalt me. I'm going to let you inform me, but not control me. And I think that that's what's so powerful about what he was, what he was saying is we have love and sorrow to invest in people and places and things. And, and, you know, a lot of times we do get so tempted to just invest in things that are so far away from us. And that's what Shreve and Quentin are doing. They're investing so much time, not in Quentin's family, in Thomas Upton's family. Why? <laughs> you know, what, what dividend is that bond paying to Quentin and Shreve? Well, for Shreve, it's play and he doesn't, you know, he's not looking for that to retire on. But Quentin, I think, is really looking to make, maybe get something from it. That's why he keeps doing it instead of saying, I don't want to talk about it anymore and just, you know, putting Shreve in his place or just, like, staying out that night and not coming home because he knows, like, Shreve's going to bother him about it. But this element of they invest so much love and sorrow into this story about Thomas Sutpen who didn't even invest love and sorrow into his own Life, And I think sometimes we can do that to our own detriment. We choose to, to try and like let some of our love or sorrow lend it to someone in the past. Well, that person in the past cannot pay us back. And we, you know, that's just a gift. It's, it's just a, a throwing, money, throwing money away. And you can choose to do that if you want. And sometimes I think that that can be helpful for us to um, embrace the past you know, it's like sometimes it's like, oh, you look back and you're like, oh, my, my great great grandfather was an awful SOB. But you know what? Like you're here because he existed and he, you know, fathered your whatever great great grandmother or, you know, father, whatever. And, and, and I think just knowing that your existence depends upon so many people in the past, there's an element of we should have love and sorrow for the past, but if we use it all in the past and we don't have it for the present or for the future, then we just feel like an empty shell all the time. I think that's why Quentin gets so suicidal is he, he doesn't, it's like, he just thinks, Oh, Caddy was the one. It's like, dude, Caddy is your sister and you can find a better girl than that because she's not a good girl. But. (laughs) Well, it's like a, sorry, I don't want to interrupt. So sometimes I've heard Quentin compared to Don Quixote, and I think that's a great comparison because Don Quixote lives in a fantasy world of the past. Like Don Quixote read enough stories about chivalric knights of the Middle Ages, and he, for him, that's maybe I don't. I have to do the research on this, but it's like not so far removed for him in the way that like 
the Civil War era is not so far removed for Quentin. Like, Don Quixote's living at the end of the Middle Ages, but he's looking back to, like, a pre- previous generation and saying, wow, weren't they something? I'm going to just lose myself in that. And he, he lives, he walks around with his head in the clouds pretending he lives in that past, pretending that normal women he meets are heroines of romance who he can put on a pedestal and, and kind of worship. This yeah. is exactly what Quentin does with Caddy, I yes. think, yes. or wants to do. And losing yourself in an imaginary narrative, which this book makes the case that the past is always to some degree an imaginary narrative because yeah, we just true. can't know what it is. Losing yourself in an imaginary narrative to the point where you care more about those people than you care about the real people around you in their reality yes. is very tempting. Yes. It's very tempting in this age of instant entertainment, like where we can lose your, you can lose yourself in one TV show after another, yeah. and one director's world after another, and one like fantasy world after another. Cinematic universe. And then you... You'd really rather pay attention to that than actually invest time in a real person in front of you because that gets messy. True. And it's also tempting to put so much of your energy of passion and compassion and outrage and pity into people you've never met before who are in the news. True. And not have any left over to give to, like, your grandma who's lonely in the nursing home or to give to, like, your sibling or your spouse or whoever yeah, yeah. who's having a hard time in your house. I mean, I, I feel like I'm guilty of that. You're guilty of that. Yeah, like yeah. saying it's just cleaner and easier to get emotional catharsis through people. I don't actually have to deal with and yeah. all their messy complexity and people from the past and people from imaginary worlds don't make any demands on me. They're just there true. when I'm ready to pay attention it's to true. them and same with people in the news. Yeah. But like you, when you, or yeah. interacting with me, you make demands on me and I make demands on you and it, it chafes and it gets messy and yeah. it messes with our selfishness, you yeah. know? Well, and that's why I say that, you know, humility is, and we both have you know, echoed this, humility is at the, at the beginning of any, any productive moment of life. It's not pr- pride, starting with pride as a, as a lens is just going to bring ruin to people around you and probably yourself um, and, and Thomas Upton, I think, is, is an embodiment of that. He's not necessarily prideful, and he's like walking around telling everybody how awesome he is. He's not necessarily a narcissist, but I think he just thinks life doesn't happen to him. He happens to life. And, you know, I was thinking about Shreve McKenzie. <laughs> Clearly, Faulkner wanted him to be named Shreve McKenzie, and that's my middle name. Uh, but he changed his last name to McCannon in the novel because he didn't remember. But clearly, Shreve has got Scottish ancestry. And I was thinking about this concept of Shreve has a name that has a, a, a nationality, but he is Canadian and he doesn't feel Scottish at all. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, this stuff happened across an ocean and I don't feel, you know, it, it, it doesn't beat my heart for me. But Quentin is named Quentin the fifth. There's this thing in his name that's saying he's five generations into a story that is not going to end. And I was thinking about Jim Bond. This is, this is just, like I said, this like late at night discussion that's like either silly or genius. Jim Bond, James Bond. Not, not literally James Bond, the, the fictional spy. James, King James the first. He comes and puts a new, you know, leader, a Scottish leader on the English throne. And there's this element of 
even Jim Bond is named after a king. And so there is an element of like, maybe, you know, maybe Sutton is, is, is the father of kings, you know, long down the road. Um, but we'll have to talk about kings in our next episode about the title. Uh, but I think, you know, Shreve and Quentin, it, it's just amazing reading this book. If you can handle Rosa Coldfield and if you can tolerate Jason Thompson, Shreve and Quentin are really fascinating, and that's why I think we talked the longest about them, because they are interested in something interesting, which makes them more interesting. If they weren't interested in it, they, they wouldn't be exciting characters, and we wouldn't have that much to say about them. And I think that's something to be said about the past, is the more you're interested in the past, the more you can learn about. You know, it's, it's almost unlimited knowledge if you just keep trying to learn things about the past, but you have to pace yourself because it, you can be drowning in the past and not be able to get to dry land of the present. And I think that's what, what happens with Quentin. Um, even though Shreve is there, he doesn't understand that, that Quentin is drowning because Quentin is lying down in the baby pool and Shreve is standing there and he's just splashing. He's like, this is so fun. And Quentin is, you know, he needs to sit up so he can not drown. Final thoughts on Shreve and Quentin, Whitney? I don't know. It just occurred to me, this is not a great insight or anything, but, you know, the Compsons are Scottish as well. And um, the original ancestor who came to America, um, who fled to South Carolina after the, the defeat of the the Scottish Highlanders, a definitive defeat. The Battle of Culloden. Yeah. His name is Quentin McLaughlin. And so Quentin's named after this original, you know, Scottish warrior who yeah. fled to America. And then uh, Quentin McLaughlin's son was named Charles Stewart after King Charles Stewart. And, and there he is named after someone who was named Quentin, who was probably the fifth in his line. And so Quentin is the great, great, great grandsons, great, great, great grandsons, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and um, they're just two different embodiments of uh, the accumulation of history, you know. And, and I think that that's what's so powerful about using them as, as foils for, for one another. Um, and, and, you know, I think it makes for an interesting friendship, but I think that Shreve is getting more out of it than Quentin and, and Quentin really needs, I think he just, he needs physical distance from telling the story, not just being in, you know, walking around Jefferson, Mississippi. I think he needs physical distance from the story so that he can interact with more things and those can become part of his story instead of he's just this grand mausoleum of time, you know, walking around holding, like Whitney said, the barracks of all the ghosts. And, and you know, part of it is his dad has kind of taught him how to live life through the mindset of metaphors. And, you know, Quentin is just like Stephen Dedalus in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man in Ulysses. He's, you know, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. Well, you got to sleep sometime, and I mentioned this in another episode, and, and you know, sure enough, they're about to go to bed at the end of the novel. Um, but, you know, the, the power of this novel is history will be there the next day. And you know what's amazing? Today is going to be history tomorrow. 
and and you know that's that's why we live it we we don't just press pause we we live it so that we can add to it and we can you know make our mark you know um rage rage against the dying light you know we we, we want to have an effect on history we want to have a voice on history uh, we want to to you know to set up the next generation or generations hereafter to understand the world better because we were here. Um, and I think that that's maybe what is the power of their conversation is that we understand not just the Sutpen family, but I think we understand history better because they had that conversation. And I'm glad they did, even though they're fictional characters in a novel, uh, because that's what the power of literature is, is it helps us understand reality because someone in the real world, William Faulkner, wrote about a fictional world that was set in the real past, right, in real places like Cambridge and, and Mississippi. And so, you know, we have these two characters that are the narrators, but in some ways they're really the protagonists. They're, they're living life in the present, and yet they are so defined by and, you know, um, accountable to and, and dependent upon the history, at least so far back as we go, you know, with the Sutpen clan. And, um, you know, it's, it's just a really interesting set of characters, and, and we look forward to kind of wrapping all of the characterization up in a discussion of the title, Absalom, Absalom, in the next episode. So that's it for today, and we will look forward to the next episode where we discuss why on earth was this novel not called The Dark House like it should have been. So we'll talk to you next time on Summer Reading with the Deals. Bye-bye.